Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here and proud member. It's Wednesday, January 26th, and I'm pleased to bring you to today's virtual City Club Forum, which as you heard is the Margaret W. Wong Endowed Forum on Foreign-Born Individuals of Distinction. Today's forum marks Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and the topic is a heavy one. We will be discussing the intersection of race, gender, and the law as it pertains to human trafficking. If you need to talk to someone about your own safety or the safety of someone you know, please connect with the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 or the Cuyahoga County Regional Human Trafficking Task Force Hotline at 216-443-6085. Recently, human trafficking has made high-profile headlines in the news. It is widespread in the United States, and victims of human trafficking can come from any background. However, according to the United States Department of Justice, 94% of sex trafficking victims are female, 40% are Black, and 24% are Latinx. And in South Dakota, where Native American women are only 8% of the population, they represent 40% of sex trafficking victims. A recent report also found that sexual abuse is one of the leading predictors of girls' entry into the juvenile justice system, effectively creating a sexual abuse to prison pipeline for those already victimized. In just last year, the state of Ohio scored an F on their Shared Hope International Report Card on human trafficking. How can we better address human trafficking locally and nationally? And what are the best practices across healthcare, public safety, and more that can help support victims? Joining us today is Kirsty Muncy, President and CEO at the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking locally here in Cleveland, and Yasmin Vafa, Co-Founder and Executive Director of Rights for Girls, a national human rights organization dedicated to ending gender-based violence against young women and girls in the country. Yasmin is a human rights attorney and advocate. If you have any questions for our panelists, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll try to work them in. Moderating the conversation today is Melina Stereo, the Charles R. Emmerich Jr. and Kelfie Halter and Griswold Professor of Law at Cleveland State University. Her research interests include the field of international law, international criminal law, and international human rights, just to name a few. Melina, I hand it over to you and welcome Christy and Yasmin to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you so much, Cynthia. It is my pleasure to be here and moderate this panel on this very important topic of human trafficking, the intersection of race, gender, and the law. As Cynthia mentioned, the format of the panel will be as follows. For approximately 30 minutes, our esteemed panelists and I will engage in a moderated conversation. And then for the latter 30 minutes, we will take your questions and we really hope to have enough time to address most of them. So with that, let's dive straight into it. My first question is for Yasmin. Yasmin, what is human trafficking and who is being trafficked most commonly and, and most importantly, how do race and gender play a role in human trafficking? Thanks, Milena. Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be here to talk about such an important topic, uh, especially during Human Trafficking Awareness Month. So human trafficking is actually uh, a broad term and it encompasses both sex and labor trafficking. But I think for the purposes of today's conversation, we're gonna be focusing on sex trafficking, which under federal law is actually defined pretty broadly. Uh, the crime of sex trafficking occurs in adults uh, anytime uh, someone over the age of 18 is compelled to commit a commercial sex act through force, fraud, or coercion. But for minors, for children under the age of 18, just their mere involvement in the commercial sex trade is sufficient to constitute uh, human trafficking or what's known as a severe form of trafficking under the law. Uh, it's important to note that a commercial sex act is defined very broadly. So it's the exchange of sex for anything of value. We're not talking about just a monetary transaction, but even children who are exchanging sex to meet their basic needs. Uh, there doesn't always need to be a third party exploiter. So it's very important to realize these distinctions because they help us better identify victims. And as you noted, you know, although anyone can be a victim of sex trafficking, we know through our research uh, across the country uh, that there tend to be certain demographics that are overrepresented. Uh, we know that women and children of color, particularly girls of color, 
predominantly African-American, Latina, uh, indigenous girls are vastly overrepresented among victims of sex trafficking. And we can talk uh, a little more in, in today's conversation about why that tends to be, but it's something that I think we, we have to discuss anytime we address this issue. Great, thank you. Kirsty, let me go to you next. Ohio, our state of Ohio got a solid F on the Shared Hope International Report Card on Human Trafficking. Can you tell us a little bit more about this report card? What is it and why exactly are we failing here in Ohio? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, Shared Hope Report Card is really a tool and, and we should really look at it in, in such a way. It's not a hammer, as we always say it. It's really a flashlight that gives states uh, guidance on where to put energy and resources in exploring uh, this issue further. So we need to put a little bit of context behind it and recognize that human trafficking is really only been a, an issue that we seriously been discussing and tackling for the last 20 years. So we don't have a lot of time under our belts and we're really sort of uh, building the plane as we're flying it, right? So this uh, F can be obviously a devastating grade and it can be heartbreaking to see, especially for the people who are doing the work on the ground, who have put tremendous amounts of effort into uh, making our laws better, uh, providing services to victims. Uh, there's a lot of energy, a high is doing really a, a great job despite this grade, um, but it is giving us a, a guideline and, and really a map on, on what we need to do going forward. And really the issues that are identified in this report uh, and where we're really falling short is around victim protection. So we're, we're having... We've, we've done most progress around the law. We have some, some laws that are really supporting victims. Again, we have still a lot of work to do, but we have better grades uh, in that area. But when it comes to victim protection, identification and response to victims, we're not doing so well. So uh, going forward for the next decade, Ohio, uh, Cuyahoga County, we really need to focus on uh, screening. We need to identify victims. We need to look at systems. And again, this is a flashlight, right? This is not a hammer. Uh, the child welfare system is pointed out. The juvenile justice system is pointed out as systems that really need to look at how we treat girls particularly, uh, and I know we will talk about this more, but uh, how we treat uh, victims uh, because they are criminalized in many cases. So we need to focus on non-criminalization for prostitution offenses. We need to look at uh, our definition of child abuse. Um, and we also need to really look at how we coordinate services. So uh, in order to serve victims best in the space, we have to come together, we have to collaborate. Um, and again, that has to happen in a non-punitive and trauma-informed way. And that's really what the report card is telling us. Now, Yasmin, are any of these conversations happening at the national or federal level? And do you know if any other states are perhaps doing better than Ohio? I hope they are, but I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure. So absolutely, the, these conversations are happening at the national level and at the federal level. Um, one thing I will say about the Shared Hope Report cards is that you know they did have to uh, adjust the guidelines this year because as uh, Kirsty said, over the last 20 years, a lot of states have actually adopted laws uh, and changed their practices. And so the standards have changed. Uh, and, and so states like Ohio that have traditionally done an excellent job in advancing laws, protecting survivors, addressing the issue of human trafficking, um, now we have this adjusted uh, measure and, and grades. And so that's why some of these states are now seeing very harsh grades uh, because it's time to really up the ante and take it to the next level in terms of you know survivor protection at the federal level we are actually in the process of reauthorizing the seminal federal law known as the trafficking victims protection act um, as Kirsty alluded to it was first passed in the year 2000 recognizing the issue of human trafficking uh, and it's really the law that gives us our definitions our federal funding and governs our response to human trafficking both sex and labor domestic and foreign adults uh, and minors, as well as foreign nationals and domestic victims. And so this is really the most important federal law that we have. Uh, we're fortunate to have a lot of bipartisan support 
around the you know advancement of laws to better protect survivors and and strengthen our response and so we're in the process of working on that reauthorization there's a really strong bill in the house and we're working on a senate companion but i think um you know it's imminent in terms of being introduced and and we anticipate it getting passed this year but you know i think a lot of states are probably grappling with what ohio uh, is facing right now in, in traditionally having scored a lot higher, but now realizing it's time to take it to the next step and, and do more. And, and, and actually, let me jump in on that and follow up with, with Kirsty. Kirsty, is, is Ohio listening? Do you think that Ohio is likely to change laws and, and policies as a result of the grade of F on this report card? You know, I think Ohio has been listening. There is a very strong uh, support around this issue in Ohio. We have uh, legislative support. We have uh, statewide uh, coalitions that are really strong and lawmakers uh, in our corners. So, so yes, I, I do really think, uh, you know, Yasmin said, you know, it's really time to up the ante. I think this is really a, a wake up call that you know, we can't rest on what we've done so far. We we can pat ourselves on the back for the progress we've made, but this cannot discourage us. This needs to be a motivation to keep going. And I do believe that Ohio is up to the task. Great, thank you. Now, one of the things that we briefly mentioned that I wanted to, to come back to is this need to reconceptualize um, our approach to human trafficking and to approach this issue by treating these young, mostly young women as victims of human trafficking rather than as criminals. So Yasmin, can you tell us a little bit more um, if you could change our federal law, if you could change our, our state laws, you had a magic wand and said, oh, you know, I can, I can rewrite these laws right away. What are some of the things that you would change so that we can start treating the survivors of victim uh, the survivors of human trafficking as victims rather than as criminals. So I think we've already made you know some progress on, on this issue uh, with the advancement of what are known as safe harbor laws. And so this was a trend um, that we started to see develop over the last, I'd say five or so years where states started adopting legislation to protect child victims of sex trafficking from arrest and prosecution for prostitution offenses. This is really based on a concept um, that we at Rights for Girls have uh, you know, spearheaded into a campaign known as the No Such Thing as a Child Prostitute campaign to really interrogate the oxymoron of the child prostitute, that if kids can't legally consent to sex, if they are defined under federal law as victims of human trafficking, how is it that we're continuing to arrest and incarcerate them for their victimization? And so a number of states have adopted these laws, uh, but again, we, we need to be doing more in terms of ensuring that they're not arrested, ensuring that they are uh, able to get services, wraparound services, comprehensive services to get um, their needs met and on a path to healing. But we're also seeing this new wave of much more serious uh, victim offenders, for lack of a better term. Uh, oftentimes, girls who have been trafficked uh, from early on in their childhood, who in being failed by every system, an adult who was supposed to care for them are put in these impossible situations and in, in the worst cases, enact violence against their exploiters. And so think of uh, the cases of Centoya Brown, Alexis Martin, who was uh, you know, criminalized here in Ohio as a child victim uh, sentenced to a very, very lengthy uh, prison term for her perceived role in the death of her trafficker, even though she didn't even pull the trigger. And so these types of cases warrant a more uh, trauma-informed legislative response. And so both at the federal level, as well as at the state level, we are helping to advance these laws, um, many of them known as Sarah's Law, named after child sex trafficking survivor turned advocate, Sarah Cruzan, who served uh, 20 years for her perceived role in the death of her trafficker who trafficked her from the ages of 11 to 17 in California. And so we're seeing these cases all across the country. There's currently cases pending with young teens right now, Crystal Kaiser in Wisconsin, Zephaniah Trevino, who's facing capital murder charges in Texas as a teen. Uh, again, you know, the, these cases warrant a strong legislative response that recognizes the vulnerability and the unique circumstances of these children who were ultimately forced to take their safety into their own hands and to really um, have more of a mitigating response when it comes to these cases.
Thank you. And 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 Yasmin, just to go back to you on, on, on this and on, a slightly related topic, we often hear talk about the so-called uh, pipeline to prison, which, which unfortunately exists in other contexts, but certainly exists in this context of sex trafficking. What, what do we mean by pipeline to prison? Why does it is, exist in this context of sex trafficking? And what federal policy or advocacy work can be done or is being done to address this issue? Sure. So, you know, in our work at Rights for Girls, we, we started to realize in our conversations with girls in the juvenile justice system that so many of them had this same, you know, narrative that they had suffered childhood sexual abuse, that they were survivors of sex trafficking, that they had had, you know, family violence in their history. And so um, when we looked across various jurisdictions, we started to see that this was a pattern in you know, some jurisdictions like South Carolina, for example, 80% of girls behind bars reported past histories of abuse. Um, in places like Oregon, it was upwards of 90% of girls. And so when we looked at those high rates of trauma together with the most common offenses for girls, it became clear that they were actually being criminalized because of the abuse that they suffered. And so just to give you an idea, the most common offenses for girls in, in the US today are things like running away from home, which you would think begs the question, what are they running from? Often abuse, um, but things like prostitution, again, when they are minors, when they are children and victims of human trafficking. And so um, we coined this term, the sexual abuse to prison pipeline to really give name to this trajectory and to the pathways of gendered violence that fuel the criminalization of girls. And again, predominantly girls of color. And so our report looked at um, African-American, Latina and indigenous girls across the country. And what we're seeing now is, you know, the ability to spread awareness around this pipeline and the ability to dismantle it, both at the state level as well as at the federal level. And so we've worked on uh, the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, which is our federal juvenile justice law to, you know, require states to screen children in their existing caseload for trafficking to divert them into services. Um, we worked at the state level uh, in, in certain jurisdictions with local partners to help dismantle this pipeline. And we work with judges around the country. So we have a longstanding partnership with the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges to train juvenile family dependency and tribal court judges on how to identify child victims in their courtrooms and how to promote um, improved outcomes that don't rely on punitive approaches, that don't rely on detention. And so there's lots of different ways to disrupt, uh, divert, and ultimately dismantle this pipeline. And I think you know it's gonna require a combination of strategies, both local as well as uh, national to make it happen. Thank you. My next question is to Kirsty. So he, we have talked about the uh, need to rewrite, reconceptualize our criminal laws. But what about other types of support that states could have for these victims of human and sex trafficking? So for example, what are some best practices across the healthcare sector, the nonprofit sector, where we can do more in order to help support these victims? Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, laws only get us so far, right? They inform uh, a lot of our practices, but what are things that people can do in these systems that Yasmin so eloquently described and where kids get uh, revictimized? Uh, as we said, you, right, there's families that fail these kids, schools fail these kids. I mean, um, Satoya Brown's story is so heartbreaking because she really pinpoints her uh, pathway into human trafficking, uh, starting in the school system and how she was victimized as a, a woman, a girl of color. So we really need to look at these systems and really need to wrestle with the cycle of oppression that, that is happening. Um, so that's one thing that, that has to happen. The other thing about human trafficking is that victims are not identified. Victims don't often don't self-identify. They're in our systems, they're in our healthcare settings, they come into our institutions uh, and we don't know that what's happening to them is trafficking. They don't know what's happening to them is trafficking. So one of the best practices across the board that we have been finding is Training and helping uh, providers understand, may that be doctors, may that be nurses, may that be teachers, uh, social workers, you name it. Uh, even we work with hotels, we work with the 
the hospitality industry, uh, all these systems, businesses that interfere and, and possibly uh, interface with survivors uh, really can benefit from training, uh, picking up on these uh, indicators, uh, identifying power dynamics when they show up, um, and giving them tools to know what to do when uh, these uh, red flags show up or when these indicators uh, present themselves. So training is huge. Uh, it's one of the, the, the things we really recommend uh, any system to take on and undertake and, and uh, do with their staff. The other best practice in this field that we're finding is screening, obviously, which comes with training. Uh, when I understand how to do that, you know, I can I can use these tools. The other best practice that we're finding and the uh, Trafficking Victim Protection Act has said that from the beginning is collaboration. Uh, human trafficking is different than the rape crisis movement or the domestic violence movement that really started from the grassroots where the services came first, then the laws were enacted. Here we have the laws governing the services. So we're seeing that uh, service providers are taking on bits and pieces of uh, serving survivors. And so in order to really come together and create a holistic uh, service approach and a holistic continuum of services, collaboration and partnerships are absolutely essential. Um, so we're really, you know, the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking, we are the backbone organization of a very large uh, coalition here in Northeast Ohio, who's trying to do exactly that. Uh, but that's hard, right? It's hard working together when we're used to uh, sort of do the work in silos. Uh, but those are some of the best practices that uh, have been identified and that we're promoting. And let me, um, Kirsty, let me follow up on this. And, and Yasmin, please feel uh, free to weigh in as well. It seems to me that the services, the, these support services that exist for trafficking victims are not exactly adequate, whether it's in Ohio or in other states. What do we do about this? How do we address this issue of inadequate services, treatment facilities, other resources for victims of sex trafficking, whether it's here in Ohio or at the national level? So, Kirsty, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to say the word, use the word adequate, because I think survivor, uh, providers for survivor service have really stepped up. Uh, I think every system that I have encountered that has realized that they serve victims of trafficking, may that be substance abuse treatment centers, domestic violence centers, rape crisis centers, you name it, mental health facilities, the moment they realize that that's what's happening, they are stepping up to the plate and they're doing the best they can to serve these, uh, these survivors. Uh, but they do need the tools. They do need the training. They need the resources to do it in the best possible way. And I think that's what the F, right, is really shining light on, is that we need more training. We need more resources. We need our uh, provide our service providers with better tools uh, to get them where they need to be uh, in order to serve the victims. So I think it, the, the efforts are there, uh, but it, you know, it takes time. It, again, takes a lot of collaboration, takes resources. So we, we need to provide those. Thank you. And Yasmin, at the at the federal level, at the national level, what, what's happening regarding these um, support services and then resources for victims? And can we do more to to help? I mean, I think we have to do more. Um, but, you know, I will say that over the last uh, decade or so, we, we have really worked to advance uh, the response, the federal response. We have worked to more than triple authorization levels for victim services, uh, doubled the appropriations for victim services and funding, but it's still not enough. You know, I think providers, as Kirsty said, are doing the best that they can with what they have, but it's very difficult to access the dollars uh, required to serve the needs of uh, these victims and this victim population. We had a member of Congress who who would routinely, you know, talk about how there were more animal shelters in this country than beds for even domestic victims of uh, human trafficking. And so it, it's very, very difficult um, to get the, the dollars needed to respond to this issue. But I think, you know, we have to do more. Um, we have thought of creative ways to try to supplement the funding. So uh, in 2015, we passed a law called the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act at the federal level that created a domestic trafficking victims fund um, that was supplemented, uh, you know, supplementing available funds for this population through fines for certain perpetrators. So certain individuals who were convicted of 
federal crimes that were directly related to this issue were then um, basically assessed. They had a special assessment of $5,000 added to whatever uh, punishment that they were to receive through their conviction. And those funds would supplement existing uh, grants for this victim population. And so we have tried to think of other ways to do it when our, you know, uh, lawmakers are strapped and, and not feeling like they can continue to invest. But, you know, as Kirsty alluded to, we have we, we have seen the ways in which the federal government has stepped up on other issues like VAWA, the domestic violence movement. We really need a comparable investment to help address this issue, because as we know, uh, just the trauma uh, and, and needs of this victim population are vast uh, from, you know, not just health services, but legal services, um, housing, childcare, you know, there's just so many different needs uh, that this population has, and, and we just need more resources to be able to address them. Great, thank you. Now, in just a few minutes, we will turn to your questions. As Cynthia mentioned in her introduction, if you have questions for Kirsty or Yasmin, you can text them to 330-541-5794. You could also tweet your questions to at the city club. And we promise to try to work in most of your questions. Now, Yasmin and Kirsty, this is a question to both of you. The topic of today's panel is human trafficking, the intersection of race, gender, and the law. How do race and gender play a role when it comes to human and sex trafficking? Yasmin, you can I'm happy to go first. I, mean, yeah. I think, as I said, um, you know, there is an overrepresentation of women and youth of color, including LGBTQ, gender expansive youth of color, um, among victims. Whether we're looking at adult sex trade survivors and sex trafficking victims or child sex trafficking victims, uh, I think what's really important to note is that these gender and racial disparities shift dramatically when we look at who some of the perpetrators are. So, you know, we have been able to collect data from a number of jurisdictions that show that the vast majority of sex buyers, those who are creating the demand for commercial sex with this population, uh, they tend to be overwhelmingly uh, white men, uh, very privileged white men of means. And so, you know, we have some fact sheets on this on our website, but we've been able to basically uh, look at these glaring uh, differences between who is disproportionately selling sex, who is disproportionately seeking to buy sex. And I think it, it paints a very powerful picture of the power dynamics at play uh, in sex trafficking. And of course, I think it, it, it begs us to really examine the roots of sex trafficking in this country, to really look at the historical legacies of racialized and gendered violence. Um, you know, we can't really understand sex trafficking today without placing it in the historical context of colonization, of slavery, um, you know, generations and hundreds of years of normalizing the commodification of women and girls of color's bodies, um, you know, for the profit and pleasure of white men, you know, I think, I think it's unsurprising to see the data that we see today. And so I think we really have to, although it's difficult, we really have to grapple with these statistics and with these disparities in order to take a more uh, comprehensive and equitable approach uh, to addressing this problem. Great, Kirsty, do you have any thoughts on this? You know, I, I wanna just add uh, every, everything Yasmin obviously say, I wanna, I wanna echo, but I think we, we need to grapple with the shift uh, of perception of what sex trafficking looks like. And it is what Yasmin describes, right? We, we sort of have this idea that, uh, and we get this fed through our media. We, get, we see the pictures of trafficking. We use the term modern day slavery. We see these girls, uh, scared in corners with handcuffs. They're mostly white girls. Or we see white women, blonde white women in movies like Taken. And I think we're, we just really need to help our, ourselves to make that shift and recognize that it's not the being snatched off the street. It's, it's not the kidnapping story. It is a very long process of continued victimizations that lead victims uh, into trafficking that traffickers really uh, know, they understand that process and, and benefit from. And so, you know, understanding what Yasmin said and understanding that it's um, primarily girls, although boys are also impacted, uh, uh, 
we know that this is an, an issue that highly affects uh, black and um, brown girls. And uh, we need to really put supports into place to early on intervene in these systems so this doesn't happen. Great, thank you. We are starting to receive some excellent questions from our audience, so we're going to turn to those now. Um, the first question goes as follows. Cleveland is just a few weeks away from hosting the NBA All-Star Game. There's some evidence that trafficking increases locally during these national events. What should the city and supporting organizations do to help bat battle trafficking when there is such an increased risk when a city like Cleveland is hosting a prominent national level event? And maybe Kirsty, you can you can start us off here. Yes, so we always have our eye on these kind of events, although the, the commenter is right. There is some conflicting evidence. Uh, there is some camps that say, yes, these uh, events attract more human trafficking. I think we have higher evidence that that's true for bigger events like the Super Bowl, uh, more than one a uh, day events. But we do our, our antennas are up. We do pay attention. Our law enforcement partners get prepared. Uh, we usually do more education around this time. Uh, we're just gearing up to work with our partners to re-educate our hotels to make sure that they have the tools that they need. They know how to identify trafficking. Um, there's some outreach that is happening. So uh, it is uh, in the in the front of our attention and, and uh, things are being put in place. So yeah, it's a good comment. Great. Yasmin? And I think, you know, the, the important thing to realize is that, you know, the reason why people suspect that trafficking incidences tend to go up around, you know, these big events is because, again, it comes to this supply and demand issue. Uh, any type of event that attracts um, uh, an influx of men <laughs> to a, a certain location sometimes, you know, encourages traffickers and other exploiters to try to capitalize off of that demand for commercial sex. And so I think um, what's important for communities to do is to really ed educate around the harms of sex buying. You know, I think people often for years tended to think this is really, you know, innocuous behavior, this is victimless. Um, and although there are, you know, important distinctions between sex trafficking and prostitution, it's important to realize that sex buyers can't distinguish, you know, meaningfully tell the difference between whether the people they are soliciting for commercial sex are there by choice or are trafficked. And so um, I think doing more education around that and the harms of sex buying, not just to survivors, but to, you know, uh, individuals themselves can do go a long way to helping to uh, address this issue. And it's a form of primary prevention. I mean, it's been shown um, not just in the United States, but globally to be a very effective form of prevention. Thank you. Actually, before we go on to the next question, let me just follow up on law enforcement. This is something that I think um, Kirsty mentioned in her earlier comments and that we just discussed in the context of this first question. Obviously, law enforcement can play a huge role in terms of preventing, deterring, addressing human and sex trafficking. Um, is there more, you know, should we be doing more training? Should we be creating specialized offices, divisions, sections within police departments? Um, do those already exist? Um, Kirsty, are, are, are you, you know, are, are you aware of, of, of this in Ohio? And then Yasmin, if you can talk to us a little bit more about law enforcement and, and training from, from the perspective of, of the national level. So the answer to training is yes, always more training. We always need more training. We need continuous training. We need this institutionalized. I think that's where we're all, we fall short in, in, in any uh, opportunities when it comes to training. We do it once. It's the set of people we train and then we don't retrain them. We don't stretch that muscle. Uh, if it's not institutionalized, if it's not embedded in uh, systems and their policies and practices, uh, trainings can be great, but they're they're not as effective as, 
as they can be. So, um, so law enforcement is, is part of that group that, yes, needs continuous training. Uh, we do have a phenomenal uh, task force, our regional task force here in Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga County is phenomenal, that works with multiple uh, institutions of law enforcement. Uh, we're very lucky to have them. Uh, but yes, other forms of law enforcement need that continuous training. Uh, we have a, a tool that has been developed for law enforcement. It's a ticket box card. Literally, uh, law enforcement carries the, uh, a sheet in their ticket box card to uh, help them identify uh, victims of trafficking and gives them the tools then to act if they uh, see a situation that could potentially be that. That's been really helpful, and a lot of jurisdictions have adopted that. Uh, but again, I think that's only the beginning uh, of what we can do, and there's always more. Great. Yasmin? I mean, I would echo, I think training is very important. You know, we see a lot of turnover in law enforcement at the local and state level. So I think having that embedded training is key. Um, but I would also add that I think there need to be real and meaningful accountability measures because what we do hear from so many survivors, and I'm sure Kirsty hears this too, is um, that law enforcement are sometimes involved in, in the violence perpetrated against survivors, including, you know, exploitation. Um, here uh, outside of D.C. in Virginia, there was a recent, you know, um, case. It just kind of exploded that there was a, a ring, a trafficking ring that um, law enforcement was a part of and protecting and for, you know, basically taking advantage of survivors in order to not criminalize them. And so I do think um, the issue of law enforcement is key to helping us, you know, address this issue. Obviously, they are an important part of the process of assuring accountability and justice for survivors and, um, you know, accountability for perpetrators. However, you know, sometimes when law enforcement falls into the category of exploiter, um, there need to be real uh, accountability measures because so many survivors, I think, um, have expressed that they, they have experienced harm at the hands of law enforcement. And so, you know, that's something that I think is key. And of course, yes, at the federal level, we have the FBI, we have aspects of DHS, uh, and Homeland Security. We have what's known as the Hero Corps, which is a really innovative program um, that we authorize through the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act, where re returning wounded warriors um, are basically trained in forensics to identify child victims of online exploitation and trafficking. And so th there's a lot of great work being done both at the federal level and I'm sure at the state level. But, you know, as we said, you know, it's about upping the ante and making sure that we are, um, you know, uh, truly operating from a place of safety and justice for survivors. Thank you. Um, just a quick follow-up question on this topic of training, and then I promise we will, I promise to our audience members, we will return to your questions. But um, it seems to me the training is also linked to education. Should we be talking to our high school students about human and sex trafficking? You know, sh should there be more training and education that's part of high school curricula across the nation so that, you know, these mostly girls who fall victim to human trafficking are better aware of, of the dangers of, of, of trafficking? Obviously, boys can also be victims, but it, the, the research seems to indicate that young girls are the most frequent victims of trafficking. What do you think, Kirsty? Again, uh, yes, 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 uh, that is absolutely true. And actually, Ohio does have some policy implication in the law that does uh, say that that is something uh, schools should be doing. Now, again, while that's a, a policy and an implication, it's hard to implement that for schools, especially now during COVID. I think we're all really struggling to get in front of systems of schools and in, to include this kind of material. But yes, that is absolutely. And we have some phenomenal programs who are already doing that, who are ready to provide that service and who uh, can be linked up with schools. So if you're on this call, if you're listening, you're a school administrator, these resources are here. Uh, people are ready to to do this work. And, and it's very important. Yes, we, we like Jasmine said, this is primary prevention. This is also meeting victims potentially who are in our schools, uh, making them aware what's happening to them, linking them to resources. So it's both primary and secondary prevention, which is huge and very important. Great, Yasmin? I, I would agree. And I think honestly, we should think about obviously making it developmentally appropriate, but I think earlier than high school is necessary. And I think, you know, to 
Kirsty's um, point about the impact of COVID. I think with increased screen time and online exposure, we are seeing um, you know, new and diverse recruitment methods, grooming tactics. Uh, I think it's just important to empower those who are at risk, um, you know, so I think, you know, starting even earlier than high school is really important. And we can start in basic ways like, you know, teaching about healthy relationships and mutuality and consent. And I think those go a long way towards helping to um, lay the groundwork for being able to talk about something like sex trafficking. But I will say in the trainings we've done and the works we've done with young people, they often know it and they've seen it. And so, you know, I think it's important for adults and the systems to communicate um, with young people around these issues early, if possible. Thank you. Now, one of the audience questions actually has to do with COVID, and we've partially touched upon it, but let me read the question and see if you have any other follow-up thoughts on this. How has COVID impacted the response to trafficking or alternatively fueled the spread of trafficking? And Yasmin, maybe you can start because you, as I, as I mentioned, you partially addressed this issue as well while talking about online um, schooling and, and how that has perhaps increased the risk of, of trafficking. Sure. So, I mean, we've seen COVID has, has you know, drastically impacted this issue. Um, you know, one thing we know from talking to partners across the country is that, you know, the demand for commercial sex has not decreased, you know, despite the public health crisis that we're in right now there is still a very robust demand. I mean, I will say our partners in LA County, which is the largest county in the country, say that their child trafficking hotline continues to ring off the hook. Um, here in the DC area, our providers have wait lists, very long wait lists of children uh, to serve who are still being trafficked and exploited. Um, you know, and I think, of course, it absolutely, you know, increases the spread. I think this is a very high risk behavior. Um, and I think that, you know, we already know that even COVID has had a disproportionate impact on communities of color. And so just really thinking about um, the fact that trafficking is something that impacts this community and now COVID, um, just thinking about just the incredible amount of harm uh, that, that is being experienced in so many of our communities and in every jurisdiction. Um, but also, yes, it's been really difficult. I know I'm sure Kirsty could talk about this, you know, uh, better, but in terms of being able to serve victims and survivors to hold groups to be able to provide those services. A lot of these uh, young people rely on these providers for not just their services, but just, um, you know, interaction, peer support, um, sometimes meals, you know, safety, warmth, the shelter, a place to go. And so I think that's been very challenging for the providers we've worked with, not to mention, you know, the impact of COVID on their own uh, lives and and how that's impacted just everyone's kind of mental health and ability to respond. Kirsty, yeah, uh, everything that Yasmin just said, I, I want to echo. It it has it has really uh, made the the work much harder. Uh, service providers had to adjust how to serve clients. Law enforcement had to adjust. Hospitals are so overwhelmed. We uh, One of the things we hear in Cuyahoga County is a shortage of sane nurses because they're taken away from those are sexual assault uh, nurses who uh, meet survivors in the hospitals and, and do that first uh, exam with them. So we, it has really impacted and has stretched the services and it also has taken resources away, which makes a whole lot of sense because, you know, foundations uh, and others had to shift their resources to more of a, uh, you know, direct needs focus. But it has impacted the human trafficking field in that some of those resources that are already spares have been drawn away. Um, so, yeah, there's an all around uh, impact on, on all of us here. Thank you. Let me turn to the next question, which is a little bit different, but still very important. And this question goes as follows. Social media has been a breeding ground for misinformation on what trafficking is or is not. For example, viral stories of parents being followed at their local supermarket and distracted so that traffickers can snatch their kids. How realistic is this? And where should we really, where should we really be paying attention? So, um, Kirsty, do you want to start us off? 
I would really refocus us uh, to what we've talked about today, that human trafficking is not the snatching of children in grocery stores. It is a, a, a pathway that we described today that starts in families, that starts with trauma, that has to do with gender and race, and that you know we really do need to listen to these kind of facts. We have amazing research and reports. I, I do recommend people to do their research well and and not trust uh, TikTok and and online sources that that are questionable. Uh, I have uh, teenagers myself, and I I see these uh, pieces of misinformation often come through my my own house and and have lengthy conversations. But really need to distinguish what's what's really happening. And I think if we can remember what you've heard today that. This is about uh, the intersectionality and not about these kind of uh, stories that take us away from the reality that's important. Thank you, Yasmin. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we hear a lot of these kind of um, horror stories and, and social media really fuels a lot of these, um, you know, rumors. But I would have to say, yes, you know, have I seen cases where survivors have been snatched off the street? Many, many years ago, yes, we've seen some of those cases, but on the whole, they tend to be, as Christy described, you know, children who come from, um, you know, different forms of vulnerability, who've experienced, you know, childhood sexual abuse, neglect, family violence, um, kids in the foster care system who, you know, fall through the cracks are readily, you know, not likely to be um, seen if they go missing, um, the types of children who, if they come forward with allegations of abuse and exploitation are not likely to be believed. You know, think of Jeffrey Epstein and, and the girls who were targeted there. Um, you know, I think that that's who we're mostly seeing children who are, have multiple vulnerabilities, who are at the intersections of, you know, different systems, uh, different forms of structural oppression, um, and, you know, marginalization. And that's, that's really what the focus is. Um, I do think it's important just to be educated on the basics and, and understand some of the signs. But yeah, I think to the, to the uh, you know, recent influx of some of these conspiracy theories that we're seeing, I think sometimes they do a lot more harm uh, than good. And, and I know make the work of many of us and our partners more difficult when we have to respond to some of these um, tips and questions um, that are being fueled by social media. Thank you. Now, the next question has a little bit more of a legal focus to it. So I'll, I'll direct it to Yasmin, but Kirsty, please feel free to weigh in as well. And the question goes as, follow, as follows. Does a victim of human trafficking need to agree or approve of any criminal charges against either her, I would add here, him or her or, or them, um, and also against the trafficker? So Yasmin, can you walk us through that a little bit more? So, you know, typically, no. I mean, you know, the, they don't have any say in charging decisions or, you know, um, that prosecutors typically make that either at the state or the federal level. Uh, oftentimes, survivors of human trafficking, you know, don't agree <laughs> that they should be uh, charged and prosecuted for certain types of offenses. Um, and same goes for their traffickers. Often, you know, it, 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 the charging decisions are made by prosecutors based on evidence that they have. Uh, oftentimes, when they are seeking to prosecute traffickers, they rely heavily on victim testimony and victims' uh, accounts. Uh, so, so sometimes, you know, it, it can be very difficult for victims in the course of these cases because they have a lot of pressure put on them. They obviously are incredibly fearful. You know, there are rarely safety plans put in place for them uh, when they are expected to be victim witnesses in these types of trials. So those are all things that we, you know, promote and try to, uh, you know, advance to, to keep those things in mind and to try to make sure that we are not re-victimizing and re-traumatizing survivors in, just to get a charge uh, against their exploiters. But no, they don't. They don't need to agree or approve. And and oftentimes we see that they are, you know, off, often used uh, in in many cases by prosecutors in order to gain leverage or in order to get them to cooperate so that they can get to, you know, the trafficker higher up in the ring. And so um, I hope that answers the question. But yeah, that's typically what we see. Thank you, Kirsty. Do you have anything to add on this? No, I think that's uh, it's a great great answer. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, the next question has to do with the shared hope report card. And the question goes as follows. 
When looking at the shared HOPE report card, most states look to be performing very poorly. Is there a state that could be viewed as a model that is performing well and that Ohio, for example, could, could, could look up to? So Kirsty, are you familiar with this? So uh, we have been working our way through the entire report card and there are states who uh, have performed better in certain areas than others. And I think what we're trying to figure out is what can we learn from each other, which is, I think, the question you're asking. Where the complication comes in is that each state functions a little different and that we really, I think, need to engage more in a conversation about what are we learning, what are we noticing. So it's a it's a question that we're asking ourselves and that we're really interesting in exploring. I have to be honest, I don't have a, an answer for, for the audience right now where I say this is the model state here because there are facets of each report card where I think we can learn something about the, the Fs as well as the Cs, uh, but there's not a state that that is, is, has glowing colors and, and, and is the model state. Great, and, and so Yasmin, um, if you wanna share some of your thoughts on this, and also um, if you could devise, design the best model mm -hmm. to address all of these issues of human and sex trafficking, what would that look like? Well, I, I think to, to Kirsty's point, every state is different, so I think it's, um, and, and has started to do things differently. So it's very difficult. Like I think people are really tempted to promote this one size fits all approach yeah. to kind of check the box, but it's just impossible, I'm afraid. And so for example, you know, in some states, um, if they identify a child victim of trafficking, that child is then legally defined as dependent as if they were in the foster care system or child welfare system. Um, so that state is gonna have a very different response than a state that doesn't do that, right? That 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 maybe uh, routes services through a different agency, um, or a different, you know, maybe does it through their, you know, public health system, or does it, you know, some states unfortunately provide services to child victims through their juvenile justice system, which is not ideal. So I think every state uh, is in a different place, and every state is uniquely positioned. Uh, so it's it's difficult to say like what the ideal approach is, but I think in terms of the markers we look for is making sure that they have strong laws, both in terms of identifying victims and making sure that it is clear, uh, having mechanisms in place so that systems and, and different stakeholders are all on the same page about you know, who and what constitutes a victim, um, has robust you know, protocols in place for being able to provide comprehensive wraparound services to those victims based on their individual needs. Again, each, each survivor is gonna have unique and distinct needs. You know, are they gonna require, you know, um, legal services? Are they a foreign national? Are they a child or an adult? Are they, do they have their own children? Are they part of the juvenile justice system? Do they have a criminal record, you know, adjudication record? Are they part of child welfare? So I think each, um, situation is unique. And so I think just it's more valuable to look at like the, the markers of what we should have in terms of a response. And um, I think one of the things that is added to that report this year is that protective framework. Um, you know, what policies and procedures are in place to protect uh, survivors and victims of trafficking who come into the criminal legal system through either you know, being charged as a trafficker or some other uh, serious offense and, you know, what protections are in place for those survivors. That's kind of one of the new frontiers that, that we're working towards. Now, let me let me follow up with um, a slightly different question, but that's obviously related to this, this idea of, of designing the best framework, the best approach to address these issues of, of human and sex trafficking. Because it seems to me that race and gender play a huge role, and as we discussed previously, unfortunately, many, if not most, of the victims of human and sex trafficking tend to be girls and oftentimes girls of color. How important is it, in your opinion, to have diversity of gender and race among the policy and lawmakers? Because sadly, many of our state legislatures are not particularly diverse. How important is it to have that type of diversity among the decision makers? 
I would say that's a it's a huge uh, point of of uh, that we have to examine and and think about. I think you're making an excellent point, Melina. If we view all these decisions and all these laws through a white male lens, which let's uh, face it, if we look at our legislators, uh, many of them are uh, in that category, we will get a, a white uh, perspective and we get a, a male dominant perspective. So yeah, it's important that we have uh, inclusive voices and diverse voices around the table who make those decisions. Yasmin? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I echo that. I think it's very important to have, you know, that's just the best way of creating, I think, um, diverse and more equitable laws. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that we haven't had some great laws and, and that, you know, legislators don't listen and, and don't, you know, um, aren't moved to do what what is needed and what is right. But absolutely, I think we can only benefit from, from having more diversity um, of experiences too. You know, I think in recent years, we've seen um, certain members of Congress and others come out as survivors of sexual violence themselves. And so again, that provides a unique perspective when legislating on laws around, um, you know, gendered violence and, and sexual assault. And so I think those diversity of experiences and backgrounds can only, you know, uh, create better and more, um, you know, intersectional laws that, that help get to the root of these issues. Thank you. I'm looking at the clock and unfortunately we're running out of time. So we're going to go, we're going to go to our last audience question, which is very important. And I think very appropriate to, to close on this a uh, very practical question. How can you let someone know they're being trafficked and then how do, how do you help them get out? What do you tell them? So perhaps Kirsty, you can start us off. So what I would say to that is this is never our uh, our job to label anyone experience, even if we recognize the indicators, we recognize the sign. It is not up to us to give that label to someone. What is our job is to be supportive, is to listen, uh, to be present, is to be non-judgmental is to be uh, asking questions like, what is happening to you? I'm, I'm noticing certain things. What's going on? I'm, I'm interested in you and in, in, in your experience. I'm interested in how I can help you. So it's more about shifting that question to, you know, what's the appropriate trauma-informed response that builds trust, that builds a relationship, we know that human trafficking victims will uh, come back into our systems multiple times. And we know if we can lay that foundation of trust and build an initial relationship. The likelihood that they return, the likelihood that they engage with the same provider is much higher. So uh, putting a label on will most likely, you know, turn someone away and sort of achieve the, the opposite. But by being present, being a supportive uh, person and sort of letting them uh, explore what's happening to them uh, themselves is, I think, the better route to go. Thank you, Yasmin. You have the last word. So, you know, I, again, I think it, it's important. The context is important, right? If this question is coming from a service provider or an educator or a parent, you know, I think it, that all obviously depends. But I just want to echo strongly what Kirsty said about not foisting labels on people. And, and as she said earlier in today's conversation, a lot of victims don't self-identify. That's not uncommon. Um, but I think, you know, again, uh, thinking of ways to maybe ex expose or share the experiences of other survivors. There's some really excellent, you know, books and memoirs that survivors have written. Um, there's a number of survivors that have, you know, strong Instagram and social media presences and followers. Um, and I think maybe exposing them to some of those individuals, um, you know, if, if possible and if it's appropriate in the context of this question, you know, referring them. Um, to a service provider or speaking to a service provider um, locally in your community and getting more, sharing more details with the provider and, and they can help you walk through um, the specifics in a case like this. But I think, you know, the most important thing is that relationship building, that trust building uh, exercise that Kirsty talked about. Because, you know, we have seen time and time again and research has shown, you know, one significant relationship with an adult is enough to change the course of, you know, any vulnerable young person's life and, and survivors of trafficking are certainly no exception. So I think that's the most important thing. 
Thank you. We are running out of time. Thank you to our audience members for their questions, to our panelists, and to the City Club of Cleveland for the opportunity to moderate this panel. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Cynthia Connolly for some closing thoughts and remarks. Thank you so much, Melena, Yasmin, and Kirsty. What an incredible and important conversation that we're having today to mark Human Trafficking Awareness Month. And thank you all uh, virtually for joining us today for today's forum featuring Kirsty Mouncey, President and CEO at the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking, and Yasmin Vafa, Executive Director of Rights for Girls. The conversation was moderated by Melena Stereo, Professor of Law at Cleveland State University. Today's forum is also the Margaret W. Wong Endowed Forum on Foreign-Born Individuals of Distinction. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free thanks to generous support from Bank of America, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. Thank you as well to our community partners, the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking, Journey Center for Safety and Healing, and the Zonta Club of Cleveland. If you need to talk to someone about your own safety or the safety of someone you know, please call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 or the Cuyahoga County Regional Human Trafficking Task Force Hotline at 216-443-6085. Next up for the City Club, this Friday, January 28th, we will hear from Dr. Marla Perez-Davis, Director of the NASA Glenn Research Center. This forum is sold out, but you can still join the live stream at cityclub.org or tune in at 90.3 IdeaStream Public Media. And on Wednesday, February 2nd, we will be back at the Happy Dog in the Gordon Square Arts District with John Mitterholzer, Senior Program Officer at the George Gunn Foundation. He'll be talking about his experience at the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26, in Scotland last November. Several new forums have been added recently, and you can learn more about those and uh, more about our forums at cityclub.org. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you again to Kirsty, Yasmin, and Milena. I'm Cynthia Connolly. Our forum is now adjourned.